Well, today, our final study in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Well, let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see the reality of spiritual warfare with which living churches and living Christians are engaged. We pray that you would also show us all that you give us to engage in that spiritual conflict by way of resources. And Lord, if there are any of us individually or corporately, who need to hear this message today. We pray that you would so impress it upon us by the Holy Spirit that we would be very, very conscious that we are listening to you speaking to us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a real letter in that it was written to a real church, but it's a real letter in that it speaks into the realm of reality. Real Christians in the church in Ephesus, a real church with real struggles, living out their faith as God's redeemed people in a godless city. And you can tell how real a letter is by the way that it ends. Finally, Paul says, chapter 6 and verse 10, 
his last words. Finally, having said everything else, hear this. You are in a war, a spiritual battle, hand-to-hand combat, the local church on the front line. And that is how this great letter ends, that we are in a war and a battle. That a local church, whether in Ephesus or here in Edinburgh, seeking to live by the gospel and the word of God, keen and zealous in evangelism, will find itself in the theater of war at the front line of spiritual battle. And they will not simply find themselves there, they will feel themselves there. For being at war is real. People get wounded. Now let me encourage you and reassure you This is not going to be a depressing talk. It might be a strange little bit of my psychology or DNA that the passages in Scripture that appear to be the most discouraging oftentimes resolve to be the most encouraging. Why? Well, I think the reason why is that the most encouraging passages in Scripture to me are the ones that speak most into real life as a Christian. And Ephesians 6 does. It is not a depressing passage. It is wonderful. And I choose these words carefully. Steadying, strengthening, reassuring. And by the end of it, if I do my job well and say what it says and apply it appropriately, and you don't fall asleep, and the Holy Spirit's alive in your mind and heart, you will know more how much Jesus loves you, and you will love him more. Right, on the notes page, three headings. We've done well in Ephesians. Almost all of our sermons have been divided into three. God's plan, spiritual warfare, knowing and loving one another in the Lord Jesus. Now, number one, God's plan. And uh, here my intention is to summarize the message of the letter to this point. I was saying in the first service that were I to ask you at the end of the service today over coffee what Ephesians is about, you would know. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you randomly in the middle of January. And if you answer God or Jesus, then I'll be despairing. That is not always the right answer. It's what about God and what about Jesus? So here is what Ephesians is all about. God's plan. God's plan. What is God's plan? Two references. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul is speaking, verse 9, about the mystery, that means something that was not known, that is now known, 
the mystery which has been revealed to him, God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, God's plan, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's God's plan. In the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And that part of the plan has not happened yet. It will happen on the day the new creation dawns. We're in Advent season. The second Advent is the return of Jesus. When he returns and the new creation dawns, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. All things in heaven and on earth will be united in Christ. And all believing people through history will live for eternity in a perfect, restored relationship with God and with one another in a perfectly restored creation. Absolute harmony in unity and community in Christ. In the first service, I found myself asking this question. I'll ask it again. Were the new creation to dawn tonight, were Jesus to come, where would you be tonight for all eternity? In heaven or in hell? That's God's plan for the fullness of time. One day, his son will return. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. All redeemed people, all believing people will live in perfect harmony with God and with one another in the new creation. That's God's plan then. What about God's plan now? In a world which is the world in which we live that is in darkness, rebellion, that is fallen, that is hard, and that is sad. Please believe me that the world in which we live is dark, in rebellion, fallen, hard, and sad. I guess that you do believe that. How is God's plan being worked out now in the world? Second reference, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Really, this is the key verse in the book. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. That through the church, and whenever Paul uses the word church, you need to get out of your mind institutions or um, all the stuff that we associate with religion and church. When he uses the word church, he means local churches, like that little church in Ephesus and the back streets, and all local churches scattered like stars across the globe, that now, through the church, all the living churches in Edinburgh, for example, this morning, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is not a different plan from chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It is the same plan in two stages. The then bit of the plan, or the not yet bit of the plan, is the new creation. The now bit of the plan Our local church is scattered all over the world. How will God reveal his salvation purposes now? Through his churches.
ordinary local churches, like this little church in Ephesus, let's call it Christ Church Ephesus or whatever, like Chalmers, other living churches in the city of Edinburgh. Now, we are nothing special. Oh, we're nothing special, are we? Oh, yes, we are. Every living local church where the gospel, the Bible, Christian love, the Christian life are embraced is something very, very special in the sight of God. God stakes his reputation on you. God stakes his reputation in the city of Edinburgh on the living gospel communities that point people to eternity. So how does a living local church, with all of its faults and warts and gremlins, display God's wisdom? Because who are we? We are a bunch of redeemed people, united through the gospel to Christ and to one another. We're a new humanity where there is real unity, real community, and love, and purpose, and hope, and holiness, and accountability, and integrity, and truthfulness, and care, and people who bother when you're not around. If you want to see what the new creation is like, then go and live in a gospel church for six months, and you will see. Now, you're probably thinking, no, it's a bit of a mess here. One of the devil's strategies is to give us too low a view of the church. God stakes his reputation on living churches. Now, that might all sound a little bit grand, maybe even a little bit touchy-feely, but Paul has made sure in his letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, what it looks like on the ground to be a bunch of redeemed people living and loving each other. Chapter 4, it means being united, getting on, not falling out. It means working together, encouraging one another, equipping one another in the gifts to build up the body. It means speaking truth, acting with integrity, forbearing with one another, quelling anger or bitterness, being kind to one another, tender-hearted. They're great words, forgiving one another. That's not very highfalutin, is it? It's just life together. Or chapter 5, holiness, purity. What we do with our bodies, what we watch, what we say, what we laugh at. The second half of chapter 5, the relationship between wives and husbands in Christian marriages. Then into chapter 6, children and parents. Those under authority and those in authority. And in all these key relationships, living in accordance with God's pattern. So how is God's wisdom revealed now in his plan in the world through us being united loving one another praying for marriages praying for families teaching our kids forbearing with each other loving each other that is how God displays 
his saving purposes to the world. Therefore, point two, welcome to the snake pit. Or therefore, welcome to the world of spiritual warfare. Chapter 6, verse 10, finally, finally, because you are how I display my wisdom to the world, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I'm going to make this more complicated than it is. What is it saying? It's saying that if this is how God displays his wisdom to the world, then all that is evil in the world is going to do all that they can to knock the stuffing out of it. That's what it's saying. What does chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, remind you of? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. Does it not remind you of chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers, to the authorities, and to the heavenly powers. Who are these people, the rulers and authorities, devil, Satan, and his angels, and all the evil power they can muster. You see, the existence of a living church in the back streets of Ephesus in the first century, the existence and growth of living churches in the city of Edinburgh today. People ask the question, does the future have a church? The answer to that question is the future is the church. That's the new creation. And the present, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or in the language of Ephesians, I will build my church and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil will not prevail against it. And nor will they. Everything in Ephesians 6 is built on the foundation that the cross defeated Satan. So we're on the winning side. But there will be all manner of havoc unleashed on you if you seek to live faithfully as a Christian. Even though Satan is defeated, he will try to take you down. So be vigilant. Be alert. And make sure you do not go out for one day without your armor on. The devil is defeated, but he will go on fighting until the Lord Jesus returns. All he will do and can do is take down a local church, which he has been successful in many times, or to break its unity, or to get it to compromise on the gospel or the Bible, or not to be committed to godliness, holiness, and love. Or to set light to relationships like marriage and family life when they go wrong. Or to scandalize a church. 
Now, let me pause for a moment and ask you this. Do you believe that the devil is real, that evil is real? Do you believe that the devil lurks in every cupboard like a a roaring lion? Do you believe he's around the corner? Do you believe you might meet him on the way home? Do you believe he goes into hiding at Christmas? He's everywhere. You know that phrase, people say, so-and-so is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly use. That's entirely wrong. We're far more earthly use when we're far more heavenly minded. It's also entirely wrong when people say, oh, these guys think the devil's round every corner. So he is. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing fast in God's grace. I think sometimes we really doubt how tenacious the devil is to seek to take down living churches, to take down leaders of living churches, to discourage, to dishearten Christians in their battle for purity and the Christian life. I think we have no idea just how powerful the devil will be at work to make sure that churches aren't planted. Now, there are seasons in our life as a church and as Christians when the clouds disperse and there is blue sky. Enjoy them. Go sunbathing. But keep saying your prayers because like British weather, spiritual clouds will return. If we are living the Christian life, if we are committed to the gospel and the Bible, we are in the theater of war. And what is the devil going to attack All the stuff Paul has set out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Number one, our unity. Number two, our love for one another. Number three, our truthful integrity. Number four, our forgiving spirit. Number five, our holiness, our purity, our marriages, our families, our working lives, our tongues. You go on and on. I said to uh, Ian and Alexandra this morning, I'm going to tell the congregation about what's happened in your life. Is that all right? And if the answer is no, I'm going to do it anyway. Of course they said it was fine. Or we could just carry on with each other at the level of the superficial. And not pray for someone in our church family who's got a brain tumor that may return tomorrow. And his kids. And rejoice that little Andrew is coming alive to the gospel. Of course we should. If only the devil can make the church Christians lose their distinctiveness. If only he can make the church more like the world. And we always think when we say that, that in matters of morality, and yes, that's right. But if only you can make it like the world, so that our relationships with one another church are a bit like our relationship with our neighbors. Very occasionally, we might sweep the snow off their path, but that's about it. Real relationships. Oftentimes, I think how much easier it would be to soften our gospel edges as a church. And that's what preachers say, isn't it? And uh, to be silent on the things that matter for a quieter life, it would be easier. It really, really would. Not to be a liberal church, but just a little bit less on the edge. But then, of course, there would be no life and vitality 
and we couldn't face the Lord Jesus because we love him too much. So in a living church, spiritual warfare is real. We need armor and weapons. Now, if I was doing a children's talk in Ephesians 6, I would have dressed up as a Roman soldier with my shoes and my breastplate and my belt of truth and so on and so forth. That's fine, and it's a good image. The most obvious thing in the image is that it's a soldier. Soldiers fight arm-to-arm combat. How do we stand strong and keep on? Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. What is the armor? Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, gospel armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. What does it mean to put on that stuff? I mean, what does it mean to, to, to put on shoes that are the gospel of peace? What does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? What does that mean? Now, remember in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, as we've worked through it, all the practical stuff about conduct and living as a Christian community, Paul has always pointed us back to chapters 1, 2, and 3 who we are in Christ, who we are as a church. His point, Christian conduct is an outworking of Christian identity. Yes, it takes effort and zeal, blood, sweat, and toil, hand-to-hand combat, but we are well-equipped because of who we are in Christ. And putting on, remember the putting on language, put on your new self, chapter 2. Put off the old self. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the shoes that are the gospel of peace means remember who you are in Christ. Remember that when you go into the battle for another day, it's not that Jesus is there in front of you or to your side showing you how to fight. He is inside of you by His Holy Spirit fighting with you, in you. Here's one verse from earlier in the letter. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So picture the fighter fighting with all tenacity, with cuts all over him, on the back foot, knowing that he or she is sealed with the Holy Spirit and has a guaranteed inheritance and is on the winning side. That does not mean, though, for a minute that you put your weapons down and just stand there. But you never, ever, ever despair. You cannot go alone because Christ is in you. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, it looks like this. When an employee or employer stands strongly as a Christian, 
When parents and children live in accordance with God's pattern for their homes. When marriages in a church are patterned in God's word. When holiness and love and forgiveness and forbearance and gentleness are lived out in a church. Twice this week, forbearance and gentleness have been absent from your ministers dealing with somebody whom I love and esteem in the Lord in the church. I'm sure I'm not alone in that, but it's not right. And the gospel sorts it. You put it right. Or when a Christian holds their tongue and restrains their anger. Or when a church, contrary to all human expectations, manages to keep united because it stands in the gospel and for the gospel. What is happening? That church or individuals within that church are putting on the gospel or reminding themselves who they are in Christ. And when they do that, and when the church reminds itself who it is, then, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and that church community will shine like a light in the darkness. Now, in verse 17b onwards, there is a little shift in emphasis from armor to weapons. Take the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. I remember as a kid doing this in Sunday school, and we got to week six. It was a long series, to be fair, in Sunday school on this. We got to week six and seven. Week six was the sword. Week seven was praying. And we all made our little swords, and then we all started fighting with each other, which isn't quite right. You shouldn't be fighting with each other with the swords. You should be fighting spiritual forces of of evil. What are the two weapons you need in a church? What are the two weapons you need? The Bible and God. The Word of God and God. The Bible and God. How do you get God? You pray. The health of any church is a direct result of how committed that church is to the Bible as the Word of God and preaching it and teaching it. And how committed it is to saying, God, we cannot do this without you. And praying in our prayer meetings or before services or in our small groups or most of all, ourselves. Why is that? Were we to have a sabbatical from preaching on Sundays, what do you think would happen? Well, we're never going to know, are we? Here's what would happen. Havoc. Disunity. The Bible tells us so that the preaching of God's word Sunday by Sunday almost sort of puts its arms around our shoulders and steadies us or encourages us. Think of when there's a crisis in the church or a death or something in our society or culture. By one o'clock on a Sunday, our perspective is shifted because the word of God is preached amongst the people of God. It is through the teaching of God's word, whether in our Sunday club, CCY or small groups, or one-on-one in evangelism, that the Holy Spirit is able to convict 
and save and transform. If something other than the Bible is taught, or something that is near but not quite what the Bible says is taught, then it will get a hearing, it will get a following, but it will not be attended by the Holy Spirit, and it will not bring spiritually dead people alive. That's absolutely true. Let me encourage you in that regard. In days which are tough for the church, do not give up on the things that will change people's lives because nothing else will in the end. The tougher things get for us as a church, and they are tough often, the more life there is at the same time. There's a bit of me that's becoming weary of people being converted as they are because of all the flack that goes with it. There's a bit of that sense, I think, with people who are running different ministries in the church seeking to bring the gospel to those from other countries. It would be easier not to do it because it's hard. Andy and Kyrene, you should do something else. Don't plant a church. And we all smile, and rightly so, because we know they're not going to flinch. But it would be far, far easier not to. And for you guys, where the real front line is, out there Monday to Saturday, And guys like Andy and Sam and I are in some ways not on the front line. We are in a sense of leading churches, but you're out there Monday through Saturday. I do not need to convince you that it would be easier if you were entirely silent about your Christian faith. Of course it would. There's a lovely comment, I think, one of the warmest, strongest comments In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In that striking, the great apostle to the Gentiles says, Please, please, you little church in Ephesus, pray for me that I won't bottle it. Stop preaching. Paul being flippant or pious? Or is he so conscious of the heat of the battle and the reality of war that he needs grace so that the apostle Paul doesn't fudge on the gospel? So pray for us preachers. Pray for those who teach the Bible in our small groups. Pray for those who teach the Bible to our children. Pray for one another as we Find courage to invite people to carol services. I wonder if these words ring true as you kind of pluck up the courage to phone somebody up or go to your neighbor or put a card through the door. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador of change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There's a good prayer to pray as you ring number two's doorbell this afternoon. Pray that I'll have boldness to ring the bell and to give them an invitation.
What a great prayer to pray. What's even greater is the Apostle Paul asked us to pray it for him. Spiritual warfare is real. We are on the winning side, but the battle is raging. We need to put on gospel armor. Remember who we are in Christ. We need to live under the authority of the word of God. Submit to it, speak it, declare the gospel, and we need to pray. And then we will do what? Here's three options. A, soar on wings like eagles. Looking down at all this warfare, knowing that we're on the winning side and triumphantly singing great gospel songs Monday to Saturday. That's A. B. Run the race like an athlete, bursting with energy. Or C. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be able to stand for another day be able to withstand, and having done all of that, just to stand. C is what the Apostle Paul asks for, and we should be content with that. To find ourselves standing for another day as a Christian and as a church is testament not to our abilities or zeal or endeavor or our fighting skills, but to the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us. Now, finally, as we close verses 21 to 24, they merit a sermon in their own right, as Paul's endings always do, but they never divide into three, so we never have a sermon in their own right. So, it's great, though, what he says here, knowing and loving one another in the Lord Jesus. His last words of his last words are about Him knowing them and them knowing him and him knowing that they know that he loves them and them knowing that he knows they love him and all of them knowing that Jesus loves them and they love Jesus. So, or in a church, that you know that I love you in Christ and I know you love me in Christ and you know I'm praying for you and I know you're praying for me and you're concerned for me and I'm concerned for you and I know that you love Jesus and you know that I love Jesus, and that Jesus loves all of us. That's what really matters in the end, isn't it? So he says, So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I I think it's Tychicus who stands up in a church meeting and reads his letter out, probably. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, our love for one another is important and critical. But the love of the Lord Jesus for us and our love for him is Paul's last of his last words in his letter. You remember the great prayer back in Ephesians chapter 3 where the apostle prays for spiritual strength for the Ephesians and for us. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays that we will know Jesus and therefore be rooted and grounded in his love. And that is how we will be strong. So let me finish with this picture. There you are standing on the battlefield. At work, say, or in the realm of temptation, or as a church standing in the battlefield that is a living church in the city. Remember three things. That the Holy Spirit lives within you. And that Jesus Christ loves you. And that you love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are powerful and real descriptions of the Christian life. Thank you for the realism of your word. Help us, Lord, to be strong, to stand, to withstand, and then just to stand. Give us the awareness each day that causes us to ask for who we are in Christ to protect us and strengthen us. Thank you that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. Help us, Lord, to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and that most powerful weapon that is dependence on our knees to God in prayer. Help us to fight the fight of faith, to be living and distinctive and real as a church, and to push out and to push on with the gospel. And we do it because you live in us, because you love us, and because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, our saviour, with a love that is incorruptible, that will never go, that will never change. Help us to love him day in, day out, and help us to be a real church, displaying your wisdom to all that is evil in the world, shining like a light into the darkness of this city. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.